Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In this episode of Running Mate, will this election see politicians address America's long history of injustice and inequality? show no remorse while watching my uncle's soul leave his body. He begged and pleaded many times just for you to get up, but you just pushed harder. Why must this system be corrupt and broken? Laws were already put in place for the African-American system to fail. And these laws need to be changed. No more hate crimes, please. Someone said make America great again, but when has America ever been great? That's the niece of George Floyd, the black man killed in Minneapolis after a police officer held his knee on Floyd's neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. George Floyd's death prompted outrage not just in cities across America, but across the world. The outrage directed at political systems that have been failing black people for decades. But are the politicians actually listening? The US election is weeks away, and both the candidates for the top job have approached the question of racial injustice in their own way. Here's Donald Trump suggesting black people have never had it so good under his leadership, despite his long history of racist comments. And I say very modestly that I have done more for the African-American community than any president since Abraham Lincoln, our first Republican president. That's Abraham Lincoln who abolished slavery in America. But Joe Biden too, while not in the same league as his rival, has a questionable record on race, from the 1994 crime bill to his recent comment on undecided black voters. You got more questions, but I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. So against the backdrop of a reckoning with race and the turnout of non-white voters being vital to the hopes of ousting Trump, Will this election see politicians address America's long history of injustice and inequality? Hello, my name is Graham Demonick from HuffPost UK team. Joining me today are two of my colleagues from the US. I've got Taryn Finlay, who is HuffPost Black Voices editor. Hello, Taryn, how are you? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Great. And Johan Jones, who's HuffPost reporter and the creator of the Black Hair Defined Project. Hello, Johan. How are you? Hello, hello. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Thanks, man. So for anyone coming to the podcast for the first time, this is what we're trying to do. I'm a British journalist living and working in America. And at HuffPost UK, we wanted to try and produce something that made sense of the US election. And this time around, we wanted to tackle the reckoning with racial injustice that's happening in America right now, and whether that's actually being reflected in the election campaign. So people in the UK will have seen the protests following the death of George Floyd. They reverberated around the world. Uh, there were many protests in the UK too. 
We've also witnessed the continuation of police violence against black people. Jacob Blake was shot in the back seven times by officers in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and that too sparked major protests. And you even had a vigilante shooting dead two protesters in the town. So the idea that things have changed since George Floyd was killed does seem absurd. So for people in the UK, why has this happened now in 2020? Taryn, what do you think the reasons are? Yeah, 2020 has definitely been unprecedented on so many levels, you know, um, starting out with a pandemic in which a global pandemic in which everyone in the world was, you know, forced to kind of sit still and, and stop. And so with all of this, with the pandemic, the ills that we already knew existed, um, you know, the, this one that we're talking about at hand, racism, one of the biggest, it didn't cease just because COVID-19 struck. Um, and as we all were sitting down and, and kind of sitting still, paying attention to our timelines, just with a bit more time on our hands, you know, black people were still getting killed by the state. Racism was still and is still happening. So I think one thing that made 2020 different than, you know, a lot of years previously is people had no choice but to sit still and and think a lot of people, especially a lot of non-black people, like saw this moment as something very different and something very detached. And I think black people did, too. Like, I, I, I definitely believe that there was optimism there among our community, but it was cautious optimism because we've seen time and time again where we have these protests and, you know, we we fight for our lives. We scream at the top of our lungs, Black Lives Matter. But at the same time, not many people really listen like there and, and there's a difference between between really hearing us and like taking the time to listen and, and do the due diligence of of making sure that policy that real changes happen so black people were definitely ca cautiously optimistic and you know i don't think that it was a surprise for many of us that uh, uh jacob blake uh was shot seven times in the back because that is a story that we've heard for generations Jahan, you've you've kind of reported about this for 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 years now. You did the you started the Black Obituary Project. Can you explain a little bit about that and kind of how that maybe fits into the moment we're having we're having now? Absolutely, absolutely. So the Black Obituary Project is a project that created with a number of uh, of, uh, of friends and um, a number of other creators throughout the world, quite on, quite honestly, to convey the broad reach of police-sanctioned violence to, con to convey the fact that it's not just harming black men, it's harming black women, it's harming black trans people, it's harming literally every intersection of the uh, black experience. And to show that there is a certain randomness uh, with regard to any of these stories going viral, always black people are kind of subjected to the whim of the white psyche when it comes to like whether our stories are going to be uh, vaulted into the mainstream. So, like, I think at least why the Jacob Blake story is unfolding in a different way and with a different fervor is because I believe people are not as confined to their homes. And so the way that would resonate, the way it is resonating, is you might feel palpably different than the way the George Floyd story was shared. It, it might even feel less potent to you, in part because 
people are able to distract themselves with things now uh, that they weren't able to at that moment. And so I think part of the strain uh, anti-racist activists are trying to cope with right now is like, how do we, how do they, how do, how does everyone instill a sense of urgency um, that existed when we were all kind of trapped in our homes and had no other option but to to grapple with the very real reality of black violence. Um, so the Black Obituary Project was uh, a number of us writing our own um, obituaries as though we'd been killed by police to show that it quite literally could have been um, any one of us. And to try, to try to convey there just the universality of this experience is what should be uh, what sparks that urgency. And as we write about these figures kind of in retrospect, we're able to think of all the heroic things, all the beautiful things about these people in the same way we could, someone, anyone could write those same stories about us um, if we were to be taken. But the idea is not that like any one of us who might be taken by the police is extraordinary. It, it is in fact our like humanity, our very, our similarity to other black people that makes us so fearful that it could be us uh, who is taken at any moment. Right. And, and both you guys seem to be hinting at, correct me if I'm wrong, that, 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 there was a moment and a chance for things to change, but that that might be kind of slipping away. That might be might be might be might be passing. So, what do you kind of both think about whether Joe Biden and Donald Trump are listening? As far as listening to Black Lives Matter and yeah, um, so we saw with the DNC, you know, all of these symbols and rhetoric around um, Black Lives Matter around anti-racist sentiments. And I think that that's not necessarily something new, that that's something that, you know, we even saw like to to a more scaled back level um, in the uh, 2016 um, campaign, um, especially on the Democratic side. But it, I think right now, um, especially considering, you know, a lot of the um, pressure that is on to make sure that candidates are, you know, um, saying and making bla- uh, blatant statements, especially on the Democratic side, um, because, you know, most black people in America do vote um, Democrat and because this party, like, needs, you know, <laughs> black right. voters right. in order in order to, to thrive. I mean, any party would need black voters, but, like, Without the black vote, Biden doesn't win. Trump, Trump wins, essentially. Right. Yeah. So I think that, you know, the pressure is on um, for especially Democrats to not only, you know, make this lip service because that's for right now. That's what it very much feels like. Um, I haven't seen any concrete policy that does, um, you know, really, really address head on. Um, a lot of these ills that we're talking about, a lot of these issues of, you know, what do we do about over-policing in black communities? What do we do um, about, you know, the um, inequity um, in de facto segregation in schools? What do we do about, you know, the fact that places like Flint and Denmark still don't have clean water? You know, there still is much um, to be done as far as like policy-wise. I think we're going to see a lot of pandering um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm really bracing myself and I'm pretty sure a lot of black people are bracing themselves for that. 
And I think a big part of that um, is because, you know, I'm not sure to answer your question if people really are listening to black voters because we refer, refer to black voters as, you know, uh, this this monolithic group, the black vote. Does, does uh, Kamala Harris being the uh, vice president um, pick for, for Biden, does that does that make any difference? She's the first black woman and Asian American on a major presidential ticket in the U.S. Is that is that important or is that, uh, again, kind of lip service and just something that the Democrats felt that they had to do? Taryn, I think what do you think? Yeah, I think it's of, of great significance. Right. You know, this is a, a an extremely historical moment, you know, for this woman to sit at so many intersections of, of, of different identities and occupy this this space on the ballot. That is that cannot be understated. You know, this like we literally are living in, in witnessing history. We've already seen attacks on her, you know, from the president, you know, using um, these tropes of calling her essentially an angry black woman, you know, not necessarily in those uh, in those words exactly, but using that stereotype to attack her. But they tried um, to stoke up a mm-hmm. another birtherism route, didn't they? About, I mean, the, uh, she was born in California, is that right? Or certainly, certainly in, in, in the states, and the suggestion that that because her parents were immigrants that somehow she she didn't have the right to stand i mean that seemed to last for two or three days but it was still it's still in the republican playbook isn't it and probably more and and she faced it more harshly perhaps because she's a woman just a quick interruption when you hear that sound i'm pausing the chat to explain a bit of american jargon or a historical reference that guests have brought up just so it makes a bit more sense to someone listening in the uk donald trump's political career is built on stoking racism in 2011 the new york businessman led what was known as the bertha movement which was aimed at barack obama Despite the former president being born in Hawaii, Trump and his supporters claimed he was actually born in his father's homeland of Kenya. The point of the Bertha movement was to cast doubt over whether Obama was legally able to be president. There's something on that birth certificate that he doesn't like. Oh my God, that's a terrible Recently you've spent a lot of time talking about President Obama's birth certificate, or lack thereof. You don't seem convinced that he has one. No, I'm not convinced that he has one. Three weeks ago when I started, I thought he was probably born in this country. And now I really have a much bigger doubt than I did before. But based on what? But Trump wasn't satisfied when Obama produced his birth certificate and he called on the president to release his college transcripts and passport applications as well. It was only during the 2016 election campaign that Trump gave up the fight, and only after he'd angered black Americans whose votes Trump was trying to win. For a brief period, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden's running mate, has faced a similar false accusation. If elected, Harris would be the first black and South Asian American to be vice president. But soon after her selection, the California-born politician was facing the same unfounded allegations from corners of the internet. They gained enough momentum for Trump to be asked about them during a White House press conference. And rather than dismiss the suggestion, he decided to fan the flames. I heard it today that she doesn't meet the requirements. Uh, And by the way, the lawyer that wrote that piece is a very highly qualified, very talented lawyer. 
I have no idea if that's right. I would have I would have assumed the Democrats would have checked that out before she gets chosen to run for vice president. The controversy has died down because, well, there's nothing to it. But it adds to Trump's long history of race baiting and outright racism. He reportedly described Haiti, El Salvador, and parts of Africa as shithole countries. Trump's career as a property developer began in 1973 when he and his father were sued by the Justice Department for racial discrimination. This was because they would not rent apartments to black people. When a woman was run down by a car at a white nationalist rally in Charlottesville in 2017, Trump said there were very fine people on both sides. In the 1980s, Trump, then a prominent New York businessman, repeatedly disparaged a group of black and Latino men wrongly accused of assaulting a white female jogger in Central Park. He went as far as spending $85,000 on adverts in local newspapers claiming that crime was out of control. And at a 2016 rally, he referred to a one-time Republican candidate as my African-American. The list goes on and on. Do you, do you think there's a case of people are perhaps politically engaged more so than they have, ever have been in terms of activism and anger and wanting to do something, but they're kind of let down by party politics? Like, they haven't got a, there isn't a political party to, to, to channel whatever this activism is. You know, Black Lives Matter could have inspired. Does, does, does it feel like Washington and and how how? American politics is set up is kind of disenfranchises people and discourages them. I think that that plays a big role in it. That plays a big role in it. You know, um, not only the setup of the system, because, you know, quite frankly, the system wasn't um, created for for us. It wasn't created for, you know, anyone who isn't white and um, anyone who isn't male. And that you know, if you don't identify as those things, it can be extremely discouraging if you're going to the ballot year after year and not seeing any any results. Um, I will say that though there are, you know, though I'm having these conversations where people are, you know, actively saying like, yes, I'm not going to vote because of X, Y, Z, um, there I. I do think that there is some some pragmatism in in that thought process. I'm not going to say whether it's right or wrong because that that I know that personally I'm going to vote, but I I think that you know for a lot of people for a lot of people exercising this this right or choosing whether or not to exercise this right is a form of protest. You know, that that is a form of protest for them. I will say that. Now, I know that, like, for me personally, especially um, given that, you know, my ancestors fought and, and died for this right, and though at times, you know, I... I I've seen and I've witnessed, you know, voter suppression. I've, you know, I've, I've witnessed, you know, uh, the ways in which it feels as if it doesn't matter. But you know, at the end of the day, it really does. It, it, it really does. Um, but as far as these conversations of, of, of who 
isn't going to vote or, or, or not. I think that there, there needs to be probably a more, a, a more sophisticated and more, um, uh, like narrow lens into seeing kind of like the, the, the thought process and the reasons why people are quite frankly feeling discouraged and fatigued. Like it is, um, the expressed strategy of the president and his campaign to use voter suppression as a means to win re-election. Earlier this year, uh, the RNC and the Trump campaign committed to, I believe it was $20 million to uh, subsidize lawsuits across the country designed to curb access to the ballot, to curb access to absentee ballots, and also to lessen, to decrease the number of polling places in a number of states. Uh, Most recently, it was a lawsuit in Nevada that was going to decrease the number of polling places in predominantly black and brown communities, and to also deny Nevada the uh, opportunity to accept any ballots that arrive late, which a lot of people are expecting given the postal service is being dismantled by the Trump administration right now. And so Trump himself said that his election hinges on the success of these lawsuits that are intended to curb access to the vote. So he's not really um, being coy about what the strategy. Voter suppression does come up as an issue in the UK, but not to the extent that it does in the US. So could you explain how voter suppression manifests itself and how black people are targeted? Explaining voter suppression to the Brits. <laughs> Where do I begin? Um, so it is a, I'll just define it as a system of discouragement, sometimes direct, sometimes implicit, um, as a means to tamp down the non-white vote. Most often it's directed at black people. Historically, there have been all sorts of ways um, black people have been discouraged from or or denied the vote, whether it is uh, the need to answer a bunch of random questions about how many bubbles are on a bar of soap or how many candies are in a jar or weird qualifiers like that, or whether it's the systematic um, closure of polling places in districts throughout the country. There have been a number of very targeted efforts um, throughout history to deny black people the, the, the right to vote and to, um, to suggest that our voting wouldn't have any value even if we were to, to act on it. It, it. It's in the form of closing of closing ballots is in the form of um, of sending, you know, certain places machines that that don't work uh, or, you know, are faulty. It's in the form of, you know, sending absentee or mail in ballots, you know, late. So um, so that folks uh, votes don't count. It's in the form of, you know, do you have the um, the right ID? Like literally voter IDs still exist in certain places. If you don't have a specific kind of ID, you cannot vote. It's in the form of literally, you know, um, different states uh, ensuring that formerly incarcerated people aren't able to vote. So it, it takes shape in in so many in so many ways and it's so insidious. Um, and so when you hear about, you know, um, 
the president talking about uh, voter fraud, which is few and far between. You know, I believe that um, they said in the 2016 election there were less than 100 cases. Um, and so when when you when you hear about like this this really small number that that truly you know is few and far between in comparison to this vast like John said systematic um, effort to ensure that that communities of color um, can't and won't vote it is as insidious as as racism itself a lot of times what we see on, you know, the Republican side is um, voter suppression. A lot of times we see, you know, um, these these things like, you know, uh, major parts of the Voting Rights Act um, were, uh, were like struck, and, uh, struck down. I believe that was 2013 uh, when it was, it was struck down. Fact check me on that. Taryn's right. In 2013, the Supreme Court effectively struck down the heart of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. That was the landmark legislation that outlawed the discriminatory voting practices adopted in many southern states. And these things that that were actively, you know, protecting our vote, um, they no longer exist because that big piece in that um, his, in this historical legislation was you know taken down, and so when we talk about like why a lot of Black people vote Democrat, it's because they are still actively trying to protect their vote. On on Trump, I, I think most um, informed listeners will probably know largely his reputation when it comes to. Uh, to, to, to race. But I did wonder what you guys thought when he said that he's done more for black people than any president since Abraham Lincoln, which even by Trump's standards seems a quite uh, audacious thing to say. Jahan, what, do you, what, what was your reaction to that? I mean, the people listening can't see the the goofy smile on my face, but I am kind of chuckling about this. Um, it's absurd. Uh, it's not convincing anybody. I mean, the black people who have lived experiences of being black um, throughout the Trump presidency can tell you that it hasn't improved since he's gotten in office. Um, it's so it, the audience for that isn't black people. <laughs> it's white. It's for white people who want to feel as though they have bought into something that has improved the experiences of black life. But um, the black people who have black lives to show otherwise, uh, know otherwise. You know, that comment coming out of the mouth of someone who said, literally called white supremacists, fine people, Mm -hmm. and refers to black people as my African-American and really objectifies you know um our community i it, it was just another eye roll for me <laughs> right, right right you know it, it's just another eye roll in a long list of or a long uh going on four years of of four plus years honestly of me just rolling my eyes at what the hell is going on 
We'll come back to Taran and Jahan later, but I've also spoken to Ryan Riley, who's HuffPost's justice reporter in the US, who's been covering the protests against police forces across America. He explains how the media coverage of riots and looting doesn't match reality and why Trump's law and order message might struggle against Joe Biden. Away from kind of like the media portrayal of what of, of what's going on in America on the streets at the moment, what what is actually happening? What what's how, how do you see it, Ryan? Yeah, I mean, well, I think it's interesting because there are so many protests happening that don't grab national or international attention, and those are the ones that are largely peaceful. Um, and I think overall, the protests have can still be considered largely peaceful, but we have seen. Um, these flare-ups in certain in certain cities uh, where there's like sort of ongoing and underlying um, issues, especially that have been sort of long brewing um, in various police departments, um, and you know different regions have all different problems with their local police force. Um, I mean, overall in America, you just have a incredible incredible differences between how police departments are run, uh, the rules they're guided by and you know their makeup and their relationship with the community um, and often those dynamics break down along racial lines um, i've been covering uh, a lot of this incident sort of growing out of portsmouth virginia which is sort of in the southern part of virginia um, and that's a place where you have a slightly majority black city but you have a police force that's mostly white and that's a dynamic like we've seen in ferguson in the past which tends to lend itself to some issues uh, where you have a police force that may not generally be sympathetic to the people they're supposed to be policing. Um, and it just creates a whole host of issues. Um, so in Portsmouth, we've seen uh, this sort of strange instance where the one of the um, local police officers, uh, a sergeant in the property crimes unit there, actually used a sort of a, an old um, law on the books in Virginia to bypass a locally elected prosecutor and bring charges uh, against a sitting state senator who's the highest ranking black official in the state of Virginia, uh, black female official in the state of Virginia. So there's just been these incredibly different scenarios playing out um, where this tension that has been uh, sort of building for a very long time is sort of you know bursting onto the scene. So it's, so it's more than just, and I say just, I don't want to kind of minimize it, but it's more than just police brutality towards uh, black people, which is obviously extremely serious and is, is driving a, a lot of the protests, but it's, it's kind of more widespread corruption as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, corruption is a big part of this and just basically how uh, police systems are set up, obviously sort of, you know, rooted in all of these police departments generally have racist histories, right? I mean, and and the system of policing in America is even deeply tied back to that back to slavery. Um, so the way that those systems uh, exist today was largely shaped by, you know, racist forces, and those dynamics continue to to play out um, today. Um, you know, Ferguson was something that I covered um, really closely, and it wasn't really strictly a policing issue. If you started looking, it was definitely a policing issue. Policing was a huge component of it. Um, but if you started digging into what happened in Ferguson, you realize all of these other influences that shaped uh, the St. Louis region um, and shaped large parts of America um, that sort of set us up for the 
the system that we have today and the problems that we have today. Um, and Ferguson was a, is a suburb of Missouri uh, that was essentially uh, created in large part initially by white people who were fleeing the city of St. Louis to get away from black people um, and specifically crafted, crafted ordinances and um, deeds to their homes to keep black people out. Um, it's single family zoning. Um, so it's essentially, you know, this path of white flight and suburbanization. Now as the dynamics have shifted and the racial makeup of the city shifted, you have a situation where Ferguson and a lot of towns like it were relying on, had mostly white police forces, um, even if they were majority black cities, um, and were relying really heavily on fines and fees um, to keep their budgets afloat and keep their police systems running. Uh, so what we saw there um, was a lot of anger over how that how that system played out and what the impact of that was um, on Black Americans in the Ferguson region. But yeah, undoubtedly, you know, violence and chaos in the streets is a real is really um, unpopular. Um, and you know, when there is organized efforts, I think that the protesters make every effort to uh, prevent that sort of mayhem from breaking out. Um, but these aren't really organized protests in the way that we saw during the 1960s. There's not one key central figure or, you know, a network or even an organization necessarily um, that is steering these protests. These are all sort of, I mean, truly grassroots incidences that pop up after uh, particularly horrific um, events. There's not a lot of rhyme or reason or organization to um, when they happen. It's something that, you know, police departments now you know should be prepared for and be aware of and be able to respond to quickly because you know there's all of this effort to sort of condemn the black lives matter movement um when in reality i mean it is a movement it's not really an organization it's no one's directing these um things to happen there are a ton of different moving pieces and individual choices involved here it's not like there's one key figure who's saying do this do that do this Trump is trying to villainise Black Lives Matter and suggest that they are responsible for the rioting and the looting and that they're this militant arm of the Democratic Party, so you shouldn't vote for Joe Biden. But they're not one block, are they? Certainly not. I mean, I would not place especially the um, you know more vocal and politically active members of the broader Black Lives movement um, initially as you know, Joe Biden primary supporters. That's not really, you know, who they are. They would, um, you know, I think that a lot of them are going to vote for Joe Biden and push for Joe Biden. But I mean, that's because it's sort of a lesser of two evils scenario for um, a lot of them to a certain extent. And same with uh, Kamala Harris, where, you know, she has this history as a prosecutor uh, in the state of California um, that really a lot of activists don't like um, and disagree with and say that she was too supportive of police and didn't do enough to hold them accountable. Um, so yeah, this idea that it's all sort of one unified front is sort of um, is sort of crazy. And you know, the the racial dynamics are never something you can ignore here. And I think there was a really sm smart piece um, in the Atlantic a little while back about how Trump was having a tough time running against uh, a white opponent, uh, right? That he couldn't. I mean, the idea that Joe Biden, Joe Biden is someone who throughout his career, I mean, if anyone is responsible for hiring more police officers, show me them, because that's someone who pushed for um, hiring um, officers in the 1990s. That was his big thing, was the federal government essentially subsidizing the hiring uh, of, of police officers throughout the country. Um, and, you know, he's someone who has this, you know, 
longstanding affiliation with police. He's sort of this blue collar guy that does, that's who he's meant to um, appeal to. So this idea that he is like aligned with the, the radicals and the rioters is just, you know, really doesn't, it's a really tough attack to make because there's not much basis on which to make that attack. But do you think that law and order is, is like, it could become the, the, the central issue of the election campaign, which seems extraordinary given we're still in the middle of a pandemic that America hasn't got under control. Just, you know, we're, we're approaching probably 190,000 deaths in the US. But you would think that law and order, based on what's on the media, is, 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 the, big, is the big talking point. Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly the, something that Trump is going to continue to do to try to make sure that does play into his hand. But, you know, I mean, a lot of this discussion is just sort of divorced from the reality of American policing and the way that American policing is set up. The federal government has a very small role in day-to-day -day policing. They can help out, you know, local police departments when needed by, you know, um, by bringing in federal officers to assist in certain scenarios. Um, but that's not generally how policing is conducted. Um, really, um, one thing that, you know, could, if you were to think about something that could actually help calm down a lot of these situations that the federal government can do would be to actually use their power to investigate um, local police departments for patterns and practices of uh, violating the constitutional rights uh, of their citizens, which is what we saw in Ferguson. But um, during the Trump administration, they've really retreated from that. And the Justice Department just isn't initiating the investigations that they used to in Baltimore and Chicago, for example, um, during the um, Obama administration. And the list goes on. Um, and those have had that has had a real impact in, in improving local police departments um, and getting into a situation where there's a better relationship between the community and the police department so that one of these incident, when one of these incidents happens, um, there's a certain level of fundamental trust there. Um, and that's really what would prevent a lot of these riots and whatnot from, from setting off. But that's a lot tougher of a sell in a way to think about this as sort of preventative medicine and making sure that, you know, the federal government doing its best to make sure that these police departments are actually following the Constitution um, isn't something that, you know, necessarily you would think of as a law and order platform. But in reality, it is. It's enforcing the law. And right now, the Trump administration has decided that that's a law they're not interested in enforcing. Just to wrap up the show with Taryn and Jahan, I wanted to throw some quickfire questions at them to help provide a bluffer's guide to America. We've talked to maybe a lot about um, not great politicians, but are there politicians who inspire you in American life at the moment? Or well, not necessarily politicians, but people maybe even outside of politics, but inspire you politically? Kamala inspires me. You okay. know, I don't necessarily agree with everything, you know, um, under in her, in her rap sheet, but her journey and and what she's been able to do and accomplished, um, it, it's just very inspiring. Not only that, but she also she's making history right now. Like if that's not inspiring, I don't know what is. Okay, Jahan, I, I can do that. My choice is going to be Stacey Abrams, the former uh, gubernatorial candidate in the state of Georgia, also the former Democratic leader, uh, I think, of the Georgia House. But um, she lost her bid for the uh, Georgia governor. And I believe that was 2018. Um, and since she's become a voting rights advocate, I just love her because she 
really is kind of all about uh, returning dignity to uh, holding office. And she, when she wants uh, to hold a public office, she explains why she's qualified for it. And she doesn't pretend like she's above holding the office. She doesn't pretend like it would be a favor for you to elect her there. She really is like in a job interview anytime she's in an election. And I really, I respect that. I don't like politicians who try to make it seem as though their, their rule over me is a favor to me. She really does apply for the job, like a job applicant. And I appreciate that. She really, um, loves the work she does and I, I aspire toward that kind of a that kind of free will and love yeah Stacey Great. Abrams is everything and she should be the governor of Georgia right now for sure okay right one to watch Stacey Abrams is there one policy that uh you would support introducing that would make uh make it more difference than anything else give black people reparations okay Give black Americans reparations that comes in. And I believe that is not only in the form of, you know, monetarily monetary, uh, but also um, health care, um, um, especially mental health care, um, you know, um, education. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, I don't necessarily have a, 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 a thorough, you know, reparations package in mind right now. <laughs> But there are just so many things that needs to that need to be done, and I, I think uh, overall reparations package for Black Americans um, is necessary. Great, John. I mean, I ain't got no business arguing with that. <laughs> uh, I, okay. I'm wholly supportive of that, and um, quite honestly, there have been a number of bills put forth to even study like how expensive uh, a reparations package would be or would not be, and that's continually voted down. So I think we should, that's uh, um, far past due. Thanks for joining me, Taryn and Jahan, and thanks everyone for listening. Um, America is clearly at a crossroads on race, but the shooting of Jacob Blake in the back seven times by a police officer shows that the death of George Floyd hasn't significantly changed the relationship between police forces and the communities they serve. And when the election campaign seems to have reduced a sprawling movement into a battle over who can seem toughest on law and order, you have to wonder whether traditional party politics can rise to the moment. Please do subscribe now for more episodes and make sure you check out HuffPost UK's other podcasts, including Commons People, our weekly look at UK politics, which are available in all the usual places. Thanks very much and see you again. <laughs>